Well, good morning. Um, my name is Richard Scott. I'm a family law uh, specialist and partner with Harrison Clark Rickabees in our Cardiff office. And today I'm joined by some, by, by some very special people who've come to talk in this podcast about pensions and pensions on divorce. Um, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Hello, my name's George Matheson, a pension on divorce expert. I've written about 4,000 reports as a single joint expert on pensions on divorce. And my job these days is to go around the country working for, with RBC Brewing Dolphin, uh, telling everyone how good RBC Brewing Dolphin are at managing people's money and dealing with pensions on divorce. Good morning. My name is Rachel Mathias. I'm an investment manager at RBC Bruin Dolphin in the Wales office here in Cardiff. Um, I've been at Bruin Dolphin for 14 years and I deal mostly with private clients uh, or anybody who needs their money invested. Hi there. My name is Daniel Jacob. I'm a chartered financial planning planner here in the Cardiff office of RBC Bruin Dolphin. Um, predominantly work with uh, private clients, so that's individuals and families, um, helping them understand uh, and develop what they want to achieve in life and if we can help them get there sooner, uh, specifically on the topic of what we're talking about today. That could be um, how can we get them to retire earlier or, uh, or help them with their pensions uh, planning. So, so George, can, can I just sort of get straight into sort of public sector pensions, if at all possible? Because um, I would say that probably a large proportion of my clients that I represent and advise uh, within the divorce context have got large pensions, whether they be doctors, nurture, nurses with the NHS, police officers, firefighters, etc. Um, there's been a lot of changes with um, public sector pensions of late. Um, what can you tell about uh, tell us about those changes and how they've changed the pensions landscape in a in a divorce settlement context? Thank you, Richard. Uh, there's three areas I think which are worth discussing when it comes to public sector pensions. One of which is what's the McLeod review. Another one uh, is the current hiatus at the time of recording this uh, in getting cash equivalent values from the public sector schemes. Uh, and the third one is their misuse of cash equivalent values when offsetting in pensions on divorce. So dealing first of all with the McLeod issue, the McLeod issue is a challenge for lawyers, divorcing parties and pensions on divorce experts alike. This has all arisen because it has been held that the pension schemes that were put in place in 2015 onwards within the public sector, often called the Career Average Revalued Earning Schemes, the CARE Schemes, it has been held that the way they were uh, brought in uh, was contrary to age discrimination law. So that means a lot of people have been accruing benefits for the last seven years from April uh, 2015 to April 2022 in a scheme which may now have to be unravelled at a later date. Now, it is not axiomatic. It's not always the case that the new scheme they brought in in 2015 is worse than the previous scheme, the legacy scheme, the old 1995 NHS scheme or the 1987 uh, police scheme or the 1975 armed forces scheme. It's not axiomatic that it's old scheme good new scheme bad. There are cases where people who've accrued benefits in the new scheme will be better off in the new scheme than had they remained in the old scheme. But the problem we have here is that at some point there's going to be a day of reckoning in the next few years when upon retirement typically the schemes are going to look at what pension people accrued between 2015 and 2022 and say for that seven-year period would you have been better off in the old scheme or the new scheme and whichever is better is what they're going to be reversed into. 
So we've got a lot of divorces going through at the moment where we are dealing with benefits that have been accrued in a 2015 public sector scheme, whereby at some future date post-divorce, but in respect of benefits built up during the marital period between 15 and 22, that there could be a significant uplift in the value of those pensions. Now, this is causing some problems because if there is going to be a post-divorce uplift in value in respect of benefits built up during a marriage, how do lawyers actually capture those benefits, increasing benefits, if that's what's required for the ex-spouse? The way we tend to suggest this is dealt with is that any benefits in a divorce proceedings built up in the 2015 schemes, whether it be the armed forces, police, civil service, teachers, NHS, etc., are totally and utterly ring-fenced and dealt with with their own discrete standalone, standalone solution of a 50% sharing order. In so doing, if we share those benefits built up between 15 and 22 in the 2015 scheme, if at a later date it is held that the member would have been better off in the old scheme and there is an increase in the value of their pension benefits, both parties, both the husband and uh, sorry, I'm being stereotypical here, talking about husband and ex-wife. Both parties, both the member and the ex-spouse, will benefit equally from that subsequent uplift in value if, in the meantime, they have been shared 50-50. It's a real big dilemma here, but this is the best approach we can have for this really thorny issue of the McLeod Review. The next issue we've got with public sector pensions at the moment is we're currently one of those hiatus periods where there is a suspension of the provision of cash equivalent values, a capitalised value often used for valuing pensions in divorce proceedings, where public sector schemes uh, for the last, since about the end of March, have been reviewing their actuarial basis and are going in the process of producing new actuarial factors and tables. Whilst this process is going on, they have suspended the provision of cash equivalent value. So if you're getting divorced at the moment and you're filling in the form E, you cannot get out of the NHS or the teachers uh, an up-to-date cash equivalent value. And it's probably not going to return for a few weeks, the provision of these uh, values. It's also the case that if you've got pension sharing orders that are being made at the moment, they cannot be implemented at the moment until these new factors are brought back in, uh, in, in hopefully a few weeks, hopefully early to mid-June. We're going to get these new factors. It's not actually caused, it shouldn't cause too many issues other than it's a bit inconvenient that the, the process may be deferred. Uh, but it, it's an issue which does cause some angst where people are desperately trying to move on with their divorces and they can't get these values. All I can say is eventually we'll get these values back again. We'll get the provision of the cash equivalent values back again. This happens every four or five years. It is nothing new. We've seen it before. Uh, and at the end of the day, it actually isn't going to make that much difference to any settlement. If you're going to divide a pension 50-50 upon divorce, if you're going to have a 50% sharing order, what the CEV is, the cash equivalent value, whether it's the old one or the new one, is not going to change that. In fact, you're going to share them 50-50. So the new CV or cash equivalent value isn't going to make that much difference. The third uh, issue on cash on, on public sector pensions is that of using the cash equivalent value which I've just talked about for offsetting purposes. Offsetting is the remedy where one party keeps the their pension and the other party to the marriage keeps non-pension assets to an equivalent value. Now often this sort of arrangement of offsetting is forced upon the parties. Often it would be that one party has the pension and the other party post-divorce needs to keep the matrimonial home and the equity in the matrimonial home to rehouse themselves and the children. So often there's a deal done whereby, again, 
apologies for being stereotypical here, whereby the husband will keep his pension and the wife will keep the equity in the matrimonial home to rehouse herself uh, and the children. Now, often we see that the cash equivalent value of the public sector pension is used as a basis of valuation. And as well as having done about 4,000 odd reports as a single joint expert on my firm, Matheson Consulting, and about 7,000 reports as a firm, I have been involved in about 150 cases of alleged negligence against family lawyers, where family lawyers have been sued for the way they have uh, dealt with pensions on divorce. And every single one of those cases, it has been alleged negligence when it comes to offsetting. And this is typically whereby they have used the provided cash equivalent value as a basis of valuation for offsetting purposes, because it, the cash equivalent value often understates the true value of that pension. If we see a case where the NHS cash equivalent value is £150,000, the true open market value of that pension may be nearer £220,000. And if by way of settlement, the husband's kept the pension worth notionally worth 150000 but reality worth 220000 but the wife has kept the equity in the matrimonial home only worth £150,000, there can be cases where you know, it, it's been seen to be at an undervalue, and that's been the cause of a lot of negligence claims. So we are very keen that people understand the cash, the limitations of cash equivalent values for public sector schemes. They're very good for pension sharing. They have to be used for pension sharing, but are they always the right thing to use when offsetting? Thank you very much, George, for that really detailed answer. That's uh, really helpful. Um, you touched upon offsetting there. Um, obviously, that's that's a, an alternative to pension sharing, and I, and I must confess that in practice. The cases that I deal with involving offsetting are in the minority, but we've got the Goldbraith tables. What sort of insight do they provide to the offsetting question? How do they help us? The Goldbraith tables are really there to provide a ready reckoner as to what is the true value of a defined benefit, a final salary pension for offsetting purposes. As I said earlier, it may well be that it's the cash equivalent value does not provide that true value. And so what we can do with the Galbraith tables is to use them in such a way that we, we need to look at what the current preserved pension in that NHS or in the armed forces or in the teacher's pension scheme is. It may be that the, the, there's a pension of £10,000 a year payable at age 60 and the, the member is currently age 50. So we can look at these tables and we can say, for, well, male age 50, retiring at age 60. We look at the tables and it comes up with the fact that, I don't know, of about 22 or something like that. We then take the pension of 10,000 a year, multiply it by the factor of 22 from the tables, and that says the true value for offsetting purposes is about £220,000. It gives us a steer as to what the actual, an alternative value to the cash equivalent value for offsetting purposes. Now, there are many ways you can value pensions for offsetting purposes, and the Galbraith tables just provide just one such method. Uh, the question, I suppose, is what authority do they have? Well, at the moment, there's been no case a reported judgment from one of the higher courts where they have been used. Uh, this year, though, they have been incorporated in the At a Glance journal alongside the Duxbury tables, which are used, which are similar set of tables used for capitalisation and maintenance. And by the fact, very nature, they've been they've been incorporated in the At a Glance journal this year. I think gives them some credibility. I am aware of cases where, for example, at first appointment, where it's very very clearly going to be an offsetting case. Uh, where there is a need to rehouse one party with the children, keep the equity in the matrimony home, and the other party wants to keep their pension. 
And it, it, both barristers at the first appointment and the district judge have said, yeah, it would seem that the Galbraith tables are a good basis. We're all happy on this. And they have been used at first appointment uh, as a basis of settlement. But I say there is no authority for them to be used uh, in the case of reported, but they seem to be getting some credibility and their inclusion in the at-a-glance journal, I think, gives further credibility. And in terms of getting a report from an expert like yourself, is, is there a particular criteria that you would say to um, solicitors and their clients, um, you know, in, in these set of circumstances, you really should have a report. I mean, would it be for almost every public sector pension scheme or would it be for uh, pensions that involve CEVs of certain amounts? Um, what, what would be your advice to us as practitioners and to our clients as to when a POD report is absolutely essential? I think it's easier to look at this and when is it not essential to get a POD report. I was involved in the formation of the Pension Advisory Group, which was a multidisciplinary body set up in about 2017 to look at what was effectively a postcode lottery and how pensions on divorce were uh, were dealt with. And it is recognised that it's very difficult. It can be a very lengthy process to get a pension divorce expert report out of the code provide out of the codes out there, out of the experts there. You know, there is an awful lot of demand for these reports, and the ability for firms to actually supply or meet the demand is is restricted. And so there can be very, very lengthy delays in getting these reports. And so what PAG, the Pension Advisory Group, did, it looked at a number of scenarios where possibly you do not need to get uh, a PODE report. Uh, and a lot of it is to do with proportionality. You know, if you have a case, and here I reference the judgment of Mr. Justice Moore in CMX and EJX, where you've got total pen- uh, total assets of about £26 million, of which the pensions comprise about £3 million. Yes, the pensions are very significant assets, but it was his view that in a case where total assets are £26 million, can we not just simply take the pension assets of three million and divide them by two? Because if there is, a, you know, if it's slightly out, it's not quite fair in the overall context of the case. It's not going to make that much difference. So I think proportionality is key. You know, had we had assets in the pensions of three million and total assets were four million, then clearly the pensions are very, very relevant and it's important to get them right. But three million out of twenty-six million, it's not really that uh, significant. The other scenarios where it's not really relevant to get an expert report, if all pension funds are defined contribution in nature, so we're dealing with money purchase funds, people have got funds with AJ Bell or with Standard Life or Scottish Widows, if all funds are defined contribution in nature, then the PAG report says you probably don't need a pension divorce expert report unless there are guaranteed annuity rates, in which case you most certainly do need to have a POD report if you've got guaranteed annuity rates uh, and sometimes they're difficult to detect and if you are if you have got a case where you've got defined contribution from and you just want to check whether there are in the guaranteed annuity rates this is where your friendly financial planner from the likes of RBC Dolph can certainly help uh, in investigating are there likely to be any guaranteed annuity rates indeed there's a very cautionary tale in the judgment of his honour Judge Edward Hess in YC and ZC from 2022 where there was a case of about half a million pounds in defined contribution funds and guaranteed annuity rates were missed. And that had the propensity to totally derail uh, the settlement in that case. Public sector schemes, if all pensions are held in public sector schemes and we are pension sharing, 
then on the whole you probably do not need an expert witness report because all public sector schemes tend to use the same currencies. So we, we know the cash equivalent value of a public sector scheme tends not to represent the true value of those pensions. But because no money escapes public sector schemes if they're being shared, you know, the, the ex-spouse keeps their pension credit in the same scheme as it's derived from. If you're sharing an NHS pension, the ex-spouse has a pension awarded in the NHS. If you're sharing the teacher's pension, the ex-spouse gets a pension awarded in the teacher scheme. Because nothing ever leaves the scheme and everything's in the same currency, then £1,000 of cash equivalent value in the armed forces or in the teachers on the NHS or in the civil service tends to have the same value. And so we can often, in those cases, simply take the cash equivalent values in public sector schemes, add them up and effectively divide by two. My only cautions here are with regards to the uniformed services schemes, where there can be some, some really big quirks in the likes of the police pension scheme and the armed forces pension scheme, where uh, length of service can be pivotal and there can be some dramatic overnight changes in values. So on the whole, public sector schemes are schemes, if everything is public sector in a case, then possibly you can dispense with a pension divorce expert unless you're dealing with armed forces and police. And the other scenarios where you may not need an expert, if it's a de minimis case, you know, if you're dealing with pension assets of twenty, thirty thousand pounds, really you're going to struggle to to justify incurring costs of two or three thousand uh, pounds to employ a pension divorce expert if you're dealing with pensions of two or three, twenty or thirty thousand. But again, this is where the Galbraith tables could come in. It may seem to be a small money case, but you're conscious that the CV is not the true value, and this is where you could use the Galbraith tables instead of using a pod. Uh, to actually come up with a true valuation. So that's a very long answer to a short question. It's an exceptional answer, George. Thank you very much. And it leads me nicely into my next question, because you briefly mentioned uh, at the start of your answer there that uh, about the PAG report, uh, which came in in 2019. And lawyers my, like myself are probably quoting this report almost on a weekly basis in our correspondence with our opponents. And to some extent, we all use it to sort of favour our own cases and attack it from different angles. One of the things that I'm asked about regularly as a practitioner in family law is about apportionment. So you've got a scenario whereby you've got husband and wife, possibly a relatively short marriage, but with long pension accrual. And obviously the PAG report uh, focuses mostly on needs, doesn't it? And make, making sure that both parties' needs are met in retirement. So my question for you is, is, is the apportionment question that historically lawyers have always asked Podes like yourself, is it still relevant? Is it is it still useful to get that answer from somebody like yourself? That is very much a legal question. We, as pension and divorce experts, will do what we are instructed to do, uh, and yet it's very clear in the PAG report that it says in a needs case, if it's a long marriage needs case, then there are rarely circumstances in which a premarital accrual should be ring-fenced and dispensed with. I'm not the lawyer. This is a legal matter whether it should be included or excluded. Uh, we will very, very much do as we are instructed. But I would make the f a few cautionary points here. If you are running an argument that the premarital pensions are to be excluded, then A, you are going to increase the cost of a POD report and B, you're very, very likely to increase the length of time it takes to produce that POD report. The reason I say the increase of cost is let's take a scenario where the, ex where the letter of instruction asks that we equalise incomes at ages 60, 65 and 67. So that's three different calculations. If we're then asked to do that each of those three different ages, one, taking into account the entirety of benefits, 
Two, taking in, uh, excluding the premarital benefits. Three, excluding the pre-cohabitation benefits. Oh, by the way, the parties can't agree on a cohab date, so we've got two different cohab dates. Uh, four, excluding the post-separation benefits. Oh, by the way, the parties can't agree on the separation dates. We've got two different separation dates. We end up with about 128 permutations of calculations, uh, which is going to be incredibly costly to deal with. Now, if you want those calculations, fine, we'll do them. But I, I just question the, the, the uh, need if it, the PAG the PAG is quite clear, and this wasn't devised by the uh, pension divorce experts on PAG. This was the legal input by the uh, barristers, by the judiciary, by the solicitors on PAG. It was their it was their uh, part of PAG to look at the appropriation or the apportionment argument, and it was very clear from PAG if it's a needs case, long marriage, then there is no real argument for exclusion of premarital. There's a very there's a, one other point I'd like to make on this as well, though, and that is the delays that this can cause. We may often be dealing with a, uh, let's say, an AJ Bell SIP taken out in 2019. And that seems pretty straightforward. It's it's during the marriage. It's after the date of marriage. However, we investigate that AJ Bell SIP and we find that actually that comprises, it was a consolidation exercise. There were six pensions on Prudential, Standard Life, the Clerical Medical, Aviva, whoever, that were transferred into AJ Bell. We now have to go back to this list and say we've uncovered that there were six transfers in. We wanted to exclude the pre-1995 pension or whatever. We now need to write to those six companies with your client's authority to get them to dig out records as to those pensions. So we then write off to the six providers. Two of them come back and say, actually, the pension with us was caused by a transfer in from another pension. We've got a transfer in from Equitable Life, which has happened in 1998. So we now have to go back to Equitable Life and we have to start. This can delay matters by six months whilst we look at this. Uh, the one case which I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed was actually about two years ago where uh, we were, it was a 58-year marriage and we were asked to exclude pension benefits uh, pre-marriage, which was 1967, I think it was. And the husband in that case produced a pension benefit statement from 1967, which said he had accrued a pension at that date of £1, four shillings and sixpence per week, and he'd like that ring fenced and excluded. Uh, yeah, that was quite interesting. Rachel, I think you want to say something on this. Thank you, George. As a non-practitioner, as an investment manager myself, I was just curious as to when you and Richard refer to clients with long marriages, what that actually looks like in practice. Well, from, from a legal perspective, I mean, it, it's certainly not enshrined in any sort of law, but I, I tend to look at a short marriage as being less than five years and a long marriage as being sort of 15 or more. Uh, that's just my rule of thumb. It's not nobody else's rule of thumb. Uh, but I've heard other judges, uh, I've heard judges in court say that to me and say they will perceive a long marriage, certainly by today's standards, as being sort of 15 years plus. Um, I think going back to George's answer on the apportionment question, I think it's just very case sensitive for us when we're dealing with our cases. I think obviously there's a world of difference in dealing with a, a, a properly put apportionment question where you've got 30 years of pension accrual and maybe only a, a six year marriage with no children compared to um, the same pension accrual of 30 years and 22 of that being marital and, and three dependent children that that need a home and need to be looked after by their parents. So I think uh, we are still asking the apportionment question of George and his colleagues on a regular basis. Um, and sometimes it has more relevance than others. Um, in terms of uh, my next um, question, George, um, 
I was going to ask you a little bit about um, in terms of uh, with the, the CETVs in private sector uh, defined benefit schemes. We've noticed that there's been a fall in some of the CEVs. Is, is there reason or rationale for that? What, what What's going on? What's, what's causing that? Thank you, Richard. Yeah, it's a very, very real problem. This isn't just a theoretical problem. This is a real problem. Here we're talking about defined benefit schemes, final salary schemes in the private sector. So we might be talking like about the likes of the British Telecom Pension Scheme or the BAE Systems or the Rolls Royce or the big banks pension schemes. Now, the cash equivalent value, the capital value of somebody's preserved pension in these schemes is calculated by actuaries. And one of the things that goes into the calculation is what is the, I don't want to get too technical here, but it's the gilt yield. And if gilt yields go up, typically transfer values go down. And we saw that transfer values for defined benefit schemes in the private sector peaked in about December 2021. Gradually throughout 2022, these cash equivalent values uh, fell and fell and fell until October 2022, the day after uh, the, the budget of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, they didn't just fall, they just fell off a cliff the following day. To the extent that the there's, there's a survey done on a monthly basis which looks at the average transfer value from all the, D, the private sector DB schemes for a male age 64, who's got a preserved pension of 10,000 a year, payable at age 65 in 12 months' time. Now, in December 2021, the average transfer value or cash equivalent value for such a pension, male age 64, the pension promise of 10,000 a year, payable at age 65, was about £270,000. By October 2022, nine months later, this had fallen from 270,000 down to 150,000 pounds. It was a real collapse. Now, there has been some recovery since then, but the recovery, the recovery hasn't anywhere near restored transfer values to where they were. And it's all to do with guilt yields. Now, this, I say, is a very real problem. I'm aware of a case, for example, where uh, one of my colleagues uh, at RBC, Brune Dolphin, was helping the wife invest her pension credit. She was expecting a pension credit following a pension sharing order of £305,000, and she received less than £150,000 because of the fall in transfer values. I'm aware of another case, uh, I think it's the Rolls-Royce pension scheme, where the transfer value had fallen from uh, in excess of 600000 to less than £300,000. It is very, very significant. And the problem is it does not affect both parties. It only affects the recipient of the pension sharing order. If you're making a 50% sharing order over somebody who's got a preserved pension of 10000 a year, age 64, payable at age 65, that person's pension is going to drop from 10000 a year down to 5,000 a year if a 50% sharing order is made. And that is, and the cash equivalent value is immaterial to that. The ex-spouse, though, who receives a pension credit would have received 50% of £270,000 had that happened in December 2021. Had it happened in October 2022, would have received 50% of only £150,000. It only affects the recipient of such pension sharing orders. Now, my advice here is that if anybody is about to settle a case where there is a dominant uh, defined benefit scheme in the private sector, and you know, we're talking here in May 2023, if you're about to settle a case with a defined benefit scheme in the private sector, which is dominating a case, and you've got a cash equivalent value, which is more than three months old, it is probably dangerously 
out of date. And I accept there may be costs in getting a new cash equivalent value. I accept there may be delays in the case. But I think it would be dangerous to settle any case now with a CV which is three, more than three months old in such cases. If the case is going to settle in six months' time, don't worry about it now. It's not relevant what the CV is now. What is relevant is what the CV is when you settle a case in six months' time. What about cases that have recently settled and the ex-spouse is receiving a pension credit much less uh, than they expected? I'm not a lawyer and I very much defer to lawyers here, but there is a, a system of appeal using what's called the Barter Rules. My understanding is that the Barter Rules would not apply here because it's not unforeseeable. And so if you have got cases which have settled and the ex-spouse has received less, I'm not sure there is much uh, that can be done there. But I very much defer to likes yourself, Richard, on such questions. Yes, George, I think that's absolutely spot on. I don't think that would be a barter event uh, as far as the, the, the legal system's convert, con concerned because um, it is entirely foreseeable uh, that um, CVs can change. And particularly given the sort of uh, warnings you've given there in your, your last answer about how um, defined benefits scheme in the private sector can fall in that way quite sharply, um, I think it's the lawyer's job and duty i suppose professionally to make sure that their clients are covered and to get that updating information uh, before every hearing um my next question um i was going to turn to my friends at brewing dolphin here at this point um i, I was just going to ask a little bit about um your involvement in terms of advising clients that i regularly um, deal with with big pensions and then i get reports from from george and his colleagues um i always try to get you guys involved really early in my cases because i just think the earlier you're involved, the earlier you can advise, the earlier you can look at pitfalls, the earlier you can sort of deal with so many issues that I think clients just sort of, you know, eliminate from their mind because they think that until I actually know what my settlement is, why do I need a financial advisor? Why do I need expert advice? So I was just going to ask you, when you get involved, what can you do for people um, who are faced with the potential of, right, something's going to happen here. I'm either going to get a pension share in my favour or potentially I may... I may lose a portion of my pension to my ex-spouse. What's your take on that? Thanks, Richard. Uh, I think there's probably two two main areas that we can help. One from an investment management point of view, and then one from a financial planning point of view at the kind of very early stages. So, as part of my role at Bruin Dolphin, I'm familiar with all sorts of different investments um, and the characteristics of those investments. Now, if you get a Form E in and you have an investment on this Form E which you're not familiar with or you are not entirely sure how liquid it is, so how easily it can be sold in the market, this is an opportunity for you to get in touch with myself uh, and say, could you just give me a little bit more information about this sort of investment? Um, and we're really happy, really happy to do that. And it can sometimes mean you could be not counting investments such as, you know, things like subscription shares, which actually have a value for a period and then they don't have a value. Um, now, these aren't necessarily things that would be make a big difference on their own, but when added up, they could make a make a sizable difference um, the other area that I think we could help with is when you're looking um, from your point of view at equality of income we can provide cash flow forecasting um, on the financial planning side so I may 
pass over to my colleague Dan Jacob, who will expand on the cash flow forecast. Thanks, Rich. Um, and just before I, I talk about that, I just wanted to highlight the point around George was saying around some pensions can have all sorts of weird and wonderful things tied into them. So it's those guarantees, it's identifying those guarantees early to see what that actually looks like. So that's an, an area we can you know scan over things and, and check to see if there's anything that's hiding beneath the initial you know the value you may see. Um, and in terms of cash flow. We find a lot of the time that clients, one, can be more um, financially literate and, and more, more, you know, more of the dominant force in, a, in a, a relationship. And cash flow helps someone establish, well, I see bricks and mortar, that's security, that's, that's you know, that's what I, I, I want to try and continue with. But cash flow can actually show actually where requirement is needed um, and what that actually looks like um, for a client you know, moving forward. So cash flow can look at everything that the client has, brings it to life in a nice simplistic way for a client to see, okay, well, I, I, I get the sort of the, compl- you know, the difference between a pension and a, my, my main residence, for example, but cash flow can actually show me, well, what does my current lifestyle look like? How much does that cost? How much do I need going forward? Um, and it brings that much more to life for, uh, for a client who maybe historically has been the sort of... Um, the party that's not uh, so you know, financially dominant in, in their relationship. So yeah, it's a yeah, really beneficial exercise. Dan, that's great. Thanks, thanks both for that. And and in terms of then just investing the pension credit, the other side of the order. So at implementation stage, so we've had our final order, we've had our decree absolute or final order on, on divorce as it is now. Um, presumably, you can also advise clients on where they want to reinvest their pension credit, the other side, and and deal with all of that and look at their options and everything. Absolutely. We would go through a kind of a full fact finding exercise with the client, uh, primarily to establish what level of risk they have the appetite to take and that they can take. Um, And following that discussion, we would then invest the pension credit in line with with their risk profile. So a higher risk portfolio would have more equity within it and less bonds which are the more stable parts and a lower risk portfolio would have more bonds and less equity so we our first point of call is to sit down with the client clean sheet of paper and just understand what they want to do and their appetite for risk we don't want to uh, invest in a way which would make a client uncomfortable. We're very much focused on using our expertise and using our research department's expertise to create the most appropriate portfolio for that client. Can I just add to this uh, as to what Dan and Rachel just said? When we do our expert witness reports, our expert witness reports are very, very vanilla. You know, we will calculate what pension sharing order is required to equalise incomes is the usual scenario and we will always assume that if on the one side of the equation let's say the husband has got a defined benefit pension which is guaranteed for the rest of his life it is immune from investment risk it's immune from inflation risk it's immune from uh, mortality risk by mortality risk I mean living too long then we would assume that the recipient of a pension sharing order usually the wife we assume that she will use the monies and buy at retirement an annuity. The reason we make that assumption is because we are then also matching risks. So the wife is assumed to receive £500,000 pension credit and at retirement buys an annuity, which is again immune from investment risk, immune from inflation risk, immune from mortality risk. The reality is, is that she probably wouldn't do that with half a million pounds. And this is what 
uh, where Daniel and Rachel at a much earlier stage than just when the order has been implemented can really, really add value to uh, the relationship between the lawyer, the financial planner and the client. Because there you will have this pensions report done by Mathis Consulting or whoever it is, which has come up with this vanilla calculation that given half a million pounds pension credit, you're going to buy an annuity of £25,000 a year. It's probably the last thing she's going to do. And it may well be that the wife, ex-wife is saying, well, look, I don't need so much income later in my life, or I'd like to put some cash aside to pay off my grandchildren's university fees, or I've got my state pension kicking in at age 67, so therefore I need a bit more cash and income immediately up front, and then it can tail off at age 67. And you can actually bring this to life. And you can, and you can say, although the POD has assumed you're going to get an income of 25000 a year, let's look at what else we can do with this. And then it might help you understand... Uh, whether you can accept what's been on the table, whether it's, you can say to you, then say to the sister, yeah, I've looked at this. And yeah, if that's the worst case scenario, I can actually live with this. Because although it's saying 25,000 a year, what Daniel and Rachel have explained to you is, is just how flexible my options are here and how we can actually tailor my income over my life to meet future life events. Uh, much and as a poet, I am so grateful when pen, when there are financial planners involved who we know are then bringing to life what are our very very vanilla one one size fits all approaches. Okay, so I just like to um, bring this uh, very informative and helpful podcast to a close, and I'd like to thank um, all of the guests that have attended today. So thank you, George. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Dan. Uh, really appreciate your time today and, and your, your insight into lots of issues that um, I think are quite poignant and important um, in today uh, today's market, dealing with sort of pensions on divorce and the, and the problems and pitfalls that we all seem to face. So um, if anyone has any questions or observations who's listening to the podcast and would like to raise those with ourselves, then please get in touch via the HCR website, which is hcrlaw.com.